So we're, we're in the middle of a very interesting discussion. And what, one thing I find fascinating, if you actually look in the Tanya, the Hebrew text, it's very unusual that uh, chapters should be divided mid-sentence. Typically you expect when you read a book, a chapter com- concludes and then the new chapter is uh, a new line. Fascinatingly, in chapters 39, which is tonight, and chapter 40, next week, they both begin mid-sentence. Almost as though you have to read all three chapters in one go, 38, 39, 40. In fact, my Tanya teachers would always teach these three as a unit. Because many of the things discussed in these three chapters intertwine. But I, I always try to keep them, you know, separate each chapter so we get the self-contained idea. But I do want to say that the discussion tonight is a direct liftoff from last week. And it's going to conclude in, in the coming week. So we'll find that these three classes stand as a unit. And the discussion that we're having is around the single Hebrew word, kavana. Kavana literally means Intent. And when we talk about intent while doing mitzvahs, Talmudically we mean uh, just what you have in mind when you're doing a mitzvah. So you're lighting the Hanukkah candles, you're thinking about the Greeks, the Jews, they had a war and there's a miracle. You're wrapping tefillin, you're thinking about connecting to Hashem, you're eating matzah, you're thinking about the Exodus. Just simple intent of the mitzvah. But the way the Alter Rebbe comes to define it in the Tanya is a much deeper terminology. Kavana doesn't just simply mean what I'm thinking about. Kavana means the life and the passion that I invest into the mitzvah that I'm doing. And in chapter 38, we began the discussion of the importance of investing our deeds with inspiration. We quoted the Talmudic line, which says, Mitzvah below kavana." A mitzvah without passion is like a body without a soul. A body without a soul exists, but it lacks life. And next week we'll talk about the Zohar's parallel statement, which says emotions in mitzvahs are wings that allow a bird to fly. A bird without wings won't die, but it won't fly. To get the mitzvah to fly... That's the passion that we invest in the mitzvah. So ritual, deed, is the main thing. That's without a doubt. If you had to pick, put on tefillin, or think about the greatness of tefillin and be excited about it, you got to put it on. Ritual is paramount. However, there's something greatly, greatly important to be said about the life we put in to the mitzvahs. And last week we opened up this discussion about the multiple levels of passion one could invest into a mitzvah. And the way we framed it was using Kabbalistic terminology, the four worlds. We talk about in Kabbalah how reality can be perceived on four levels, depending on the type of soul that you have. We have the action-centered Jew, we have the emotion-centered Jew, the intellect-centered Jew, and the God-centered Jew. That's my paraphrase of the four, the four levels of divine consciousness. And each Jew who has 
an individual type of soul, which comes from a different world, Kabbalistic world, will experience passion in his mitzvahs in different ways. Last week, we talked about the first two. The action Jew's passion, it's a very low-level, simplified passion. All it is, is sincerity. It's investing a sincerity where you're at peace and wholesome with the mitzvahs that you do. It doesn't require a big excitement or a fiery explosion. It's just a very, very peaceful connection with the God in the mitzvah. And then we talked about the next level, which is what we call the emotional passion, where the person uses his character, the natural tendencies in his character, to create deep feelings for Hashem. And that accompanies his mitzvahs. So now his mitzvahs become emotionally charged. He walks into shul, you can see on his face, he's excited to daven. He's excited to do tefillin. He's, when he's putting in the dollar bill to tzedakah, you can see there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an air about him. He's just got this bounce in his step. Some people put the dollar in and yeah, they're having a frown, but this guy's excited about it. And that's great. The, the, the limitation on this Jew is that he only gets excited about things that he's naturally predisposed to. We talked about this a little bit last week and it's going to come up later, how every soul is minted with a certain tendency. Each of us has the full panorama of potential emotions. But we're born with dispositions. This guy's more likely to be kind. This guy's more likely to be lazy. He'll have to work on it. This guy is more likely to be generous. This guy is more likely even to be evil, let's say. There's different predispositions. We all have free will. And we can all access the deep part of ourselves that allows us to go beyond the limitations. But as a theme, we're born with certain, let's call it inborn traits. For the positive and for the negative. And so when the Jew who's emotion-centered gets excited about a mitzvah, the problem with it is that he limits himself to his tendencies. He'll only get excited where he's natural to get excited. But he'll never produce emotions that are beyond or antithetical to his nature. And this is why, in the end of chapter 38, and it goes right into the beginning of 39, there are a run-on sentence, the Alter Rebbe compares this type of soul to an animal. Because animals are exactly that. They're instinctive. They have natural inborn tendencies and that's how they are. Now the analogy is not perfect because we have free will and we can ascend. But the way the Jew is operating currently, he's allowing himself to be boxed in by his nature. And therefore in a way, only gets to experience a sliver of his full potential. Because so long as you don't transcend your limitation, you're only giving yourself access to a limited window of yourself. You know who else are called animals in the Torah? Angels are called animals. Angels, the way the Torah, not not in actual Torah, but in the prophets. In Ezekiel, when he describes the vision of the godly chariot, he describes the angels with the name chayot, which means beasts. And he talks about how there's a, a face of an eagle, a face of an ox, a face of a lion. 
And those are all representative of angels. Why do they have these names? It's interesting why, just parenthetically, nothing to do with Tanya, but why, why they chose those three animals. Lion is the strongest in the undomesticated arena. The ox is the strongest in domesticated animals. And the eagle is the most powerful bird. And there's a big question what happened to the fish, why they don't have representation. But it's a different, it's a different discussion. But why do they get the name animals? Because just like animals have one tendency and that's the way they operate, the angels are also, they don't get to experience the full kaleidoscope of, every, of, of options. In the Zohar it says, you know, the angel Michael, he is all about loving kindness and attraction to godliness. The angel Gabriel is all about discipline and severity and awe. The angel Raphael is all about healing and unity and harmony. Every angel gets his course and that's what he's on. Now, where they're good, they shine. You know, they're incredible at it, but they only get to experience that limited window. And so in a certain way, a Jew could operate on that level. The passion he invests in mitzvahs are only in, let's say, the mitzvahs that he likes. Okay, so he won't have passion in, uh, in uh, wearing tzitzis because it's uncomfortable. But he loves the idea of Shabbos. He just loves the idea of taking off a day of work, reconnecting with family, unplugging from the world. It speaks to him, and he gets really excited about it. And that's fantastic. It's fantastic. But he's missing the full gamut. And for that reason, he gets called, or this kind of passion gets called animal passion. Tonight, in chapter 39, we move to the last two levels what's called human passion. And then we have what the Altar Rebbe calls for the greatest of tzaddikim, the greatest of the righteous, they get to experience a, a, a totally different dimension of passion. The human passion is reflected by the human being. What, what is it that separates humans from animals is that we have the possibility, if we only want to, to transcend ourselves. Literally, to use that that parallel, the animals don't have the ability, the human, with his objective mind, can generate new perspectives that will reflect themselves in a new type of action that he may not have done had he let himself to his natural devices. In terms of mitzvahs and passion for mitzvahs, we're talking about getting your mind to produce emotions that you would otherwise not have experienced. It takes a deep maturity because it means I'm ready, to, I'm ready to be defined by truth and honesty, not by myself. You hear often people giving the excuse, you know, it's not my personality. It's not my type of a thing. That's not, this is my type. That's not, it's great. And I tell those, you know, I, I, I applaud those people help them grow in the areas that they're already disposed to growing. But a higher soul would insist on using the human capability of graduating yourself, graduating your own limitations. Yes, it's not your personality. Can you get excited about that too? Because it's the truth. And that's within the power of the mind. The human mind has the capability to understand the truth of something and generate feelings of appreciation for it. By the way, it, it, it kind of works the opposite way too. It, it, it works in discipline. Not only can we appreciate uh, new things, we can also learn to appreciate holding back on things. 
how many people eat, eat right at the cost of enjoying great food. It, it, it might taste good, but it's no good for your health system. And because your mind educates you on that, you leave your nature, which is predisposed to sweets, to sugars, or to whatever, and you tell yourself, I'm going to stay away and discipline, um, adopt a new diet. It's the same with exercise. It's the same with material living as, as a whole. Your mind has the power to move you from where you would naturally be to a new space. And to bring that into our conversation, this is a higher level of kavana. A person who could use his mind to create feelings that he wouldn't otherwise have for certain mitzvahs is experiencing what the Alter Rebbe calls human passion. Now I want you to know that uh, in the actual Tanya, in the chapter, the Alter Rebbe says this is um, the realm of tzaddikim. Hmm. He doesn't make it for the average man. Because the average man can't be expected to do that. It's a great achievement. And in other places in Hasidus, not in the Tanya, in other discourses, it says that it's also applicable to the average person. But in the Tanya, he frames it as uh, the tzaddik's realm. The person who is able to get a window into uh, a part of himself that he wouldn't otherwise access. So on, on the scale, that's number three. We have you know, the lowest level, there's just sim- simple sincerity, getting emotionally excited about what you're naturally excited about, and then getting emotionally excited about things that you're not naturally excited about because your mind was able to teach you to get excited about that. And then you have the fourth level, which the Alter Rebbe says is for the great tzaddikim. Mm-hmm. Not just a regular tzaddik, this is for the great tzaddikim. And this is what he calls the merkava, the chariot or to use the words that I was using in the beginning, the God-centered Jew. There's no self. Is Merkava. Because there's no self. Just like a car. You know, if your car starts making its own decisions, that's when you have a problem, right? The car wakes up, goes, I want to go 90 miles an hour now. All right, we're going. Yeah, then that's not going to work. By definition, a chariot or a vehicle of transportation is completely... What you say in Hasidic language, bottle, it's completely nullified and given over to the driver. And there are some Jews, very, very rare souls. Moshe Rabbeinu is given as an example. The patriarchs, Avraham Yitzchak and Yaakov, are given as examples in the Zohar for this, that are a living, breathing Merkava. And like I wrote to you earlier this week, it's, it's, God is as natural to them as breathing is to the human being. We don't even think about the fact that we're breathing. We just do it. In fact, we never have to get educated to breathe. Baby comes out of the mother's womb. It's breathing. Even to eat, we have to learn. Breathing comes naturally because it's just, it's who we are. Try, try to use that to picture the tzaddik, the highest tzaddik's experience of God. It's just who he is. There is no self. Identity begins with God. And the passion they experience, the altar of it doesn't even describe it. 
in Tanya because it, it doesn't lend itself to description. He just says it's higher than the human intellect has the capacity to understand. It's a gift from God. It's not something we can reach. Just like being a tzaddik is not something you can reach. It's a gift. The author Rebbe said that. He must, have, he must feel it. Yes. He was one of those tzaddikim. That, that the, 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 the tradition from Rebbe to Rebbe is that the Alter Rebbe was a soul of Atzilut. Was, was a Merkava. That's true. Yeah. He, he, he was a Merkava soul. And therefore he knew it. Yeah. Therefore he knew it. Yeah. You know, just, just to borrow... Because it doesn't give too much description, I want to just borrow for a second from a different uh, area in Hasidus to enhance this. There are two words in Hebrew that tend to be confused. Tahara and Kedusha. Purity and holiness. Typically we use them as synonyms. It's pure, it's holy. But the truth is that pure and holy are very different. And just to use this, you know, uh, uh, quickly, I want to just borrow the idea. Purity is always vulnerable to impurity. Even in literal Hebrew, when you use the word pure, pure oil, pure wine, it can always become murky. Anything clean lends itself to immediately becoming unclean. Holy, by definition, is untouchable. The word in Hebrew for kiddushah, literally means separate. It's a different level. It's a different realm. <coughs> That's the tzaddik's type of passion, the great tzaddik. It, it's not, it's not a, you know, he, cl- he climbed the ladder and then he got to the highest rung. You can climb Mount Everest, but you can't reach the sky. There are no rungs for that. So, that's the, uh, that's the analogy where Hashem, these great tzaddikim, He gifts them the experience of being God-centered, of, of getting to that level. And they get to experience a level of kavana, a level of passion that, that nobody else gets. So these are the, the four basic levels. Now, of course, there's millions and millions of Jews each one has an individual vari- variation of one of these four, but we typically fit into one of the four categories. That's why it's always broadened to these four generalities because everybody can find their space within, uh, within this, this spectrum. But the plot thickens. The plot thickens. It always does, doesn't it? It always does. The reason that the plot thickens is because there's a terminology, there's a term in Kabbalah which is called Hitkalalut. Hitkalalut means inclusion. And what it says, the principle of Hitkalalut says, Everything in holiness, everything godly, is whole. And has the potential to access every level on the spectrum. Therefore, 
every soul is whole and contains elements that are attached to every other type of soul. Every world, spiritual world, is whole and contains elements of every other world. When we count Sfira Ta'omer between Passover and Shavuot, you can see this in the Siddur. Every one of the 49 days, we rectify one of the uh, emotions. Now, there are seven um, basic emotive attributes, Chesed, Gvura, Tiferet, but you'll find yourself saying in the Siddur on the first day, Chesed Shebe Chesed, kindness within kindness. And then you'll find yourself saying Gvura within kindness the next day, Tiferet within kindness. This is, this is the same principle. Every emotive attribute is comprised of all other attributes. Therefore, says the Alter Rebbe, we must say that even if a Jew has a soul that came from the lower world and could only, let's say, have access to one level of passion, because the soul is complete, there has to be a way that he could access the other levels as well. So us, as action-centered Jews, the lowest level, there has to be a way that we get to experience what it's like to be emotionally charged, intellectually charged, and even the highest level of the great tzaddikim somehow, some way, get a glimpse, get a sneak peek into the greatest tzaddik's experience. When does this happen, or how does this happen? The Alter Rebbe says, special times and special places. Special times and special places have the power to inject our souls with a passion that's beyond the capacity of their nature. Is a great story about this. You know, the Rebbe would teach uh, in the beginning of his Rebbeship, let's call it, in the first couple of years, every Simchat Torah, he would teach a new song, a new nigun, that he had heard from Hasidim or in other places in Russia that was not known in America, and he taught it, a total of 14 of them. And one of them was a song which has become quite famous, Anim Zmirot. Anim Zmirot That song. And that many times uh, there was a story attached to the song. And in this case too, when the Rebbe taught this song, he, he gave the story behind it, where it comes from. Turns out it comes from paradise. This song comes from Ganeden. And the Rebbe told um, a summarized version of the story when he taught the song, and later, in a private audience, told the full version of the story. There was a guy, a rich man in, who lived in Russia, had an incredible estate, and was growing older. Very, very rich man. And one Shabbos, after davening, he was in his estate taking a walk. And at the very edge of his land, there was a shack belonging to a poor family. And as he approached, he could hear crying. 
typically didn't go there. It's his neighbor's property. But now he hears crying. He went inside to see what happened. And he sees a woman surrounded by small children and she's crying uncontrollably. And he tries to find out what happened and it turns out they're back on their rent. Not just for months, but for years. And the landlord, like in all good Jewish stories, put the husband in the dungeon. Took the husband out and uh, put him in jail and was starving him to death. And this rich man, he just was overcome with pity. He says, tell me how much you need. What, what is the price that we're talking about? And she, just, she, she almost laughed at him. She said, there's no, there's no way you have that kind of money. We're talking years accumulation. This is not, this is over. My kids are gonna be orphans and there's nothing to do. He says, listen, just tell me what it is. And she told him it was an exorbitant amount. And he said, I'm, I'm gonna come back and help you. He went back and after Shabbos, drew up an account of everything he owned, his entire estate. And turns out that he had the total plus a tiny little bit. So he left that little bit for himself, transferred all his estate into IOU notes. And the next day came to the landlord and said, I heard you have a guy in, in prison, I wanna free him. So the guy, he laughed at him. What do you mean, you, you know what we're talking about? He said, yeah, I'll show you the documentation. I have the money. And he showed him and the guy was completely, you know, shocked beyond belief that this Jew would go out of his way for a three quarters dead man. But he freed him. He redeemed him and he took all the money. The man went home. The joy that was in the family was just unbelievable to watch reunited with her husband. And he was now left with a couple hundred bucks he has no, no home, no property. He moved further away next to the poorer people, bought himself a little shack and uh, was living there. Never knew what happened with the family. This was his new life. He said, you know, maybe if God wants me, I'll, I'll make it again. He tried investing. He became a poor man. And a couple of months later, he has a dream. In the dream, the man who he had saved came to him and he said, I want you to know something. Two or three days after you freed me, I passed. And I came to heaven and I was one of the hidden Sadiqim, the 36 hidden Sadiqim that exist in every generation. The gates of heaven were open for me. But as I was about to enter, an angel came and stopped me and said, you owe somebody a debt. We can't let you in until you repay what this Jew has done for you in freeing you from jail. So he said, I'm here. I'm here to reward you. I need to give you something back for what you did. And the man in the dream says, no, I did the mitzvah for the mitzvah and I don't want, I don't want any reward. The guy says, I know, but I need you to, I need you to do me the favor. I, I can't get into Gan Eden unless this, unless you take something. So here are the choices. You could either get everything you had back, all your riches back plus more, or you could get to experience Ganeden in this world. You'll get a taste of paradise in this world. And he chose the second option. He said, give me a taste of Ganeden, but I want it to be on Yom Kippur. The holiest day of the year, I want to experience Ganeden. 
says, you got it. The next Yom Kippur, he was still poor. He couldn't get his usual seat. So he sat on the back bench where uh, the poor people sat and he put his talus over his head and he felt himself being transported to a different time, a different place. And he had the most magnificent, unbelievable experience of, of his entire, entire life. And he felt a tap on the shoulder in middle and he thought that you know maybe this is somebody's seat so his talus was over there he moved, he moved over and was continuing to experience this sublime thing and then someone else tapped him and after like four or five taps he, he took his talus off his head and it was morning the shul was empty he had stayed in his talus for over 30 hours not even realized that Yom Kippur had passed because he had been immersed in the Ganeidin experience and while he was there he was singing this song, Anim Zmirot, as we have it, this was the song that he was singing in great ecstasy. And it was heard from generation and it was passed on and the Rebbe taught it. This is an example of one soul, a limited soul getting a window into, uh, into something higher. Parenthetically, there's, a, there's an ending to this story. Not related, but it's a great, great thing. Uh, one of the Hasidim who had an open door with the Rebbe he had a very incredible relationship. His name was Rabbi Reuven Dunin. He, he, he asked the Rebbe, he said, I heard, it's, it's rumored that you were the man. That you were the chassid that experienced Yom Kippur in great ecstasy. Is it true? I don't know if he had actually heard that or he made it up just to see if Rebbe would answer. And the Rebbe, said, the Rebbe laughed and he said, this story happened before the times of the Baal Shem Tov. And I'll tell you the proof. Because after the Baal Shem Tov revealed Hasidus, there's no way the person would have chosen Gan Eden over the money, which would, give him, which would give him a chance, which would give him a chance to do more physical tzedakah. Hasidus perspective would say, and we've talked about this in chapter 35 to 37, the value of the act is greater than any Gan Eden could produce. So the Rebbe said it must have happened before the Baal Shem Tov's times. Yeah. But this is, a, this is one example of a window into a higher, into a higher experience. You know, there, there, was a, there was a tzaddik, um, I believe it was the Yismach Moshe, who was the grandfather of the Satmar dynasty. He once did something that merited special reward from on high. I don't know how this stuff works. I've never experienced it, but apparently they came to him from Shamayim and they said you, you've merited a reward what do you want so he said I want to experience the fear of God that the Rambam experienced the level of Yirat Hashem fear of God that, that the Rambam had I want to experience it so they told him we can't do that it, it, you, would, you would die if you would experience that you would, it would just be completely beyond your capabilities he said, okay, you know what? Give me the fear of heaven that the Rambam had while doing surgery. The Rambam was a doctor. And when doing surgery, presumably, he had to be fully involved in what he was doing. And Hashem was only in the back of his awareness. So give me that. And they granted it to him and he collapsed. Ultimately, he was revived. But the idea of the Rambam's with, you know, God in the back burner was incredibly in tune that could, you know, it, it collapsed another tzaddik. 
But uh, we, we get to experience special times and special places, says the Alter Rebbe, are conduits for higher energies. In the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe labels two, two special times. First, Shabbos. Every Shabbos. We celebrate Shabbos by putting on different clothes and eating good food. Shabbos is mystically, it's a potent day. If used correctly, Shabbos has an energy that can allow us access to a part of our soul that we could never otherwise experience. Same is true of holidays and Rosh Chodesh, which the Alter Rebbe also mentions. These days are infused with potential for our soul to what's called in Kabbalah, ascend to the next world. We can get a feeling of what it's like to be in the next level. And also special places. It's very apropos. We're going this week, traveling to the Rebbe. It says this in Kabbalah, that at the gravesite of a tzaddik, in a place where a tzaddik davened, in a place where a tzaddik invested his energy, there's a special energy that allows you to get in touch with a higher level of your neshama. That's why at the Kotel, so many experience these, these uh, incredible experiences. It's not just because uh, it's hocus pocus. It's a place where Hashem was revealed. It's the Bet HaMikdash. And so a potency remains. And we're able to get in touch with that. So even though as a theme, there's different levels of Kavana that we get to experience generally, there is the idea of ascending the ladder where we get a sneak peek. And it's possible um, to experience a higher type of consciousness. The truth is, every day we get a chance to do that during davening. Now it's hard because we don't have the time to wind up for davening and then wind down and most of us just come into shul, we got to get it done, I got to start my day and off to work. But the truth is that during Shmona Esrei, the Amida, the pinnacle of davening, if done right, we could experience something beyond our usual capability. That's why there's so much prep talk before Shmona Esra. It's preparation. It's, it's a ladder. We climb the ladder of prayer. In fact, we say right before davening, Va'ani tefilati l'cha Hashem eit ratzon. My prayer is a time of goodwill. That means not just generous goodwill from God to fulfill our needs, but it's a time of goodwill where higher divinity is attainable. Higher godliness is available. And it's a very interesting idea because the world is so not programmed to understand this. What's another day? It's just another day. Shabbos is Shabbos. A holiday is a holiday. Now, the Rebbe's father on Rosh Hashanah was once walking and uh, somebody... Was, was walking with him and said, you know, I don't understand what it says in Kabbalah that uh, on Rosh Hashanah, the, the world is kind of in limbo, waiting to be crowned by Hashem as king. And the Rebbe's father almost looked at him with shock. He said, can't you see that the river is flowing differently? The stream, the current is going differently. He was in tune with, with these things. You could, there, there's a very deep truth. And so this is the thing. This is, the, this is the basic outline of, of passion and inspiration as it's delineated in the Tanya. And in the second half, in the second half of the chapter, which again, as I said before, flows right into chapter 40, so I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger because it's not concluded until next week. 
In the second half of the chapter, the Alter Rebbe develops, now that we know what it's like on our end, what's it like on the other end? We know what kind of passion we have to invest in the mitzvah. What happens when we do that? What's the consequences of, of our passion? And to fully understand it, I want to just give some Kabbalah 101, and I'm getting a little Kabbalistic tonight, but bear with me. One of the tenets of our faith is reward. We believe that Hashem will compensate for the deeds that we do in this world. And to keep it really tight, every mitzvah that we do has two parts. The act and the intent. That's what we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. The ritual, the deed, and the energy, the life we put into it. Or let's use the framework of the Talmud, the body and the soul. Every mitzvah that we do has a body and a soul. And the way it's explained is that the body of the mitzvahs get rewarded in body world. That's this world. The soul of the mitzvah gets rewarded in soul world. That's why every Jew is going to experience two phases of reward. One in Gan Eden, spiritual. That's the reward for the soul element of the mitzvah. And ultimately, we're going to have the resurrection of the dead in this physical world. Because we need the physical reward for the physical element of the mitzvah. So we're going to leave the physical reward out. Tonight we're going to be talking about the spiritual effects of our mitzvah. That's Kabbalah 101, part one. Here's part two. We talked before about the different worlds, spiritual worlds. Just like the world is a dynamic place, it's huge. There's, there's billions and zillions of beings, organisms in the world. Every spiritual world is very dynamic. There's a lot going on. Yet, and let's, let's use the human being as a good example for this. We're like a, a micro world. We're also a dynamic being. How much is going on right now in every single one of us to keep us going? So much. We have a center though. We have a mind, we have a heart. That's what makes us human. The fact that we can think, the fact that we can feel, the fact that we have awareness. And even though our brain, size-wise, is only a fraction of the body, but its value is disproportionately larger. It's literally the, it's literally the center. We, we, we need everything else. We need our hands, we need our fingers, we need our toes, we need our bodies, the whole thing. But the brain is the core. It's where everything, the buck stops at the brain. In the same way, the world has a center. The center in Kabbalah is called the Betamikdash. The nerve center of this physical world is the site of the Holy Temple. Tiny compared to the 30,000 mile circumference of the globe. Doesn't matter, the brain's also tiny. Its effect is disproportionate to its size. And in the same way, every spiritual world has a bet hamikdash, has a center. We're going to talk about this in chapters 51 to 53, a lot about the bet hamikdash in each world. 
But suffice it to say that every spiritual realm has a center and then a lot going on around it. And the way it works, and just accept this for what it is because we're going to get into this in later chapters. The way it works is that the Jew gets to experience the outer dynamics of the world that your soul came from. The Bet HaMikdash, just like in the physical Bet HaMikdash, nobody was allowed to live there. It was a place for the divine Shekhinah, you can just visit. The center of every spiritual world is where your mitzvahs go, and they emit life to the rest of the world. Like your brain distributes life to the body, like the Bet HaMikdash distributed blessing to the whole world, your mitzvahs distribute a, a godly light to every other part of the spiritual world, and that's what our souls experience when we return after 120. And so when we talk about passion in our mitzvahs, giving our mitzvahs wings, we have to look at it in that, w- in that way. We're letting our mitzvahs fly to the same world that our soul came from, for the action Jew, for the emotional Jew, the intellect Jew, the godly Jew, our mitzvahs precede us to those realms and we will enjoy that experience when our souls go back. With that in mind, we can appreciate the consequences of why it's so important to invest our mitzvahs with meaning. Because our experience, our spiritual reward is wholly dependent on the feeling we put into our mitzvahs. What we're going to get in Gan Eden is commensurate with the amount of heart that we put into the mitzvahs. And the flip side, obviously, is that if we don't give our mitzvahs wings, they can't fly. Remember the story from last week with the Baal Shem Tov? He came into one shul, he said, this shul is too full, I can't go inside. They took it as a compliment, but really it was a denigration that they, they, they hadn't invested their Torah with feeling, so it had no wings. It couldn't, it couldn't fly. So if you're kavana deficient, your birds are wingless. You chip the wings off, and it can't fly. But there always has to be a happy ending in Judaism, which is that it's always redeemable. If your mitzvah was deficient in kavana, the passion wasn't invested, there's a way to get it back. But that depends on how <laughs> deficient it was. <laughs> the level of which your mitzvah was, was lacking passion is the level to which you'll have to make up for it. And uh, the Alter Rebbe identifies a couple of levels in Kavana deficient. The worst one is not even in the Tanya. I, I, and, and it could be this one's not actually not redeemable. But the worst level is where your mitzvahs are actually imbued with the antithesis of passion. And this is what's called in the Talmud, Likanter. You, you learn Torah to undermine it. You learn because you're an atheist and want to find, to hurt Torah itself by learning. 
is, this is not even discussed in the Tanya. It's brought up in other discourses that it's, this is the worst type of lack of kavana you could have in the mitzvah because your kavana is the opposite. You, you, you have an energy involved, but it's on the opposite side. Lekanter. Lamed kuf nunt tafresh. It's literally, yeah, it's literally the other side. The next level is where you're doing mitzvahs or learning Torah for personal gain. I'm learning Torah tonight because I'm going to go to Disneyland. I'm learning Torah tonight because somebody's paying $1,000 if I come. I'm learning Torah tonight because I'm going to become smarter and everybody will respect me. I'll be called a rabbi. That's what it says in the, in the Talmud. I'm the Nachi Udi Rebbe. They're going to call me rabbi. I'm going to be prestigious. They're going to put me in the front row. Personal material gains from learning Torah and doing mitzvahs. Here, what happens is, it's not as bad as the guy who wants to you know, go against the Torah. But you, you've, what the Alter Rebbe uses, the metaphor of glue. You've, you've trapped your mitzvah. You've made it stick to, uh, to a shell that's not letting it escape. And to unstick it, it requires teshuva. It requires a certain level of grieving over it, repenting, and then it unsticks. And it can fly back up. Because the mitzvah was intact. You just did it with the wrong intention. The mind took you to different places. There's a variation on that where you're doing it for a spiritual gain. It's also a gain. You know, I want to do this so I can get olam haba. I want to do this so I can experience the rewards, the spiritual rewards. It's also considered a personal, <coughs> personal type of gain. And then there's the final level discussed in this chapter and with this we'll close. And we're going to continue it next week because it literally, it flows one into the other. Is... When you do a mitzvah with no particular intent. This is what most of us are guilty of. Robotics. What do you think about when you were davening today? I don't know. I just, I get up. I got to start my day with davening. And the, the, the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe's father, told a story of the, uh, a certain guy, who, a certain villager, who used to daven every day as soon as he woke up. And one day he woke up and he davened and he went to the marketplace to sell his, his first cow and he realized that it's still night. The moon must have come up and confused him and he thought it was morning. And, and he davened because he knew the first thing when you get up is you daven. So, it, no, no, no negative intent, but no positive. He just, he just did it by rote. So it's a kind of Judaism we have to stay away from because it's, it's, first it's impossible to sustain and secondly, it's, it's very dry. But here, there's a very interesting way to fix it. You don't have to do teshuva because you didn't do anything wrong. But your mitzvahs still don't have wings because you didn't put anything into it. So what do you have to do? You have to do a redo. You do a redo. Do over. And the Alter Rebbe's words are immediately. 
as soon as you do the redo, it takes with it yesterday's davening. Say tomorrow you daven with, with passion, it'll, it'll take with it the davening. You ate matzah last year with no meaning, this year you put in meaning, it carries the other one with it. It's fascinating how it works. In the fifth section of Tanya, we talked about Tanya as five sections, we're in the first one. In the fifth section, the Alter Rebbe has notes that he wrote to himself on chapter 40, which we're going to study next week. He talks about this at length. <coughs> and he says that when it comes to davening, it's very hard, you know, to, to re-daven. If I didn't daven today, it was a boring davening. How am I going to switch tomorrow to daven the whole davening with passion? So he says, as long as you daven once throughout the year, hmm. each paragraph with meaning, it'll take the whole year's davening with it. And there were many, many chassidim who would do this. Many chassidim, they had what's called the wrinkle in the sitter. Every day they would wrinkle a different page and that day focused on a different paragraph. So that throughout the year, they got through all of davening knowing that each paragraph was said at least once with, with deep kavana and it takes everything with it. Because when you're not here nor there, you haven't put your mitzvahs in the dumps, yet you haven't allowed it to reach its full potential. So when you redo it, you drag the others with it. There's a whole Kabbalah to this, and we're going to explore this next week. But this is where, this is where it closes. So to summarize what we have, passion in mitzvahs is extremely important. Of ultimate importance is the deed, but passion is equally, it's the soul. You can experience passion on four different levels, and depending on what you put into it, you send your mitzvahs back to that world. And if you don't, there's different recipes. If you're undermining Torah, I don't know if you have a, redeem, a redemption. If you're doing it for personal gain, teshuva. And if you're not here nor there, take the chance to do a do-over, and that'll allow your previous mitzvah to have an ascent. L'chaim. L'chaim.